0: Welcome to EWA's FinLit podcast. EWA is a fee-only RIA based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We hope all listeners of this podcast will benefit as we deep dive into uh, complex financial topics that we will make simplified for you, and we hope that this really serves as a catalyst so that you can make the best financial planning decisions uh, for your family and also save time. Hey everybody! Welcome to EWA's Finlit Podcast. We're excited to talk today about a very common question we have: uh, Should I do Roth or pre-tax? And this question is similar for you know 401k planning, 403b planning, uh, even IRA planning. So just a really quick overview: an IRA just stands for an individual retirement account, and a 401k means you're working at a for-profit company, and a 403B means you're working at a non-for-profit or governmental. Um, but in general, the 401K and 403B, which are through your work, it's your money, but through your work, it generally has a vesting schedule for any employer money that goes into it. And then IRA, it's an individual retirement account, so that, that's you know your account. And these are two separate universes, so meaning you can have both. You can have a 401K and an IRA. And you can actually have multiple 401Ks, and an IRA on the side as well. So, uh, James and I are going to be talking about this widely debated topic: what's better, pre-tax or Roth? Obviously, very, uh, very pertinent to someone's individual situation and in financial plan. But today, we're going to we're going to create uh, a lot of just you know knowledge and education around the differences, pros and cons, etc. So. Um, before we uh, before we go into, you know, debating which one's better, we we'll just go to a high-level overview. So, James, do you want to cover um, generally how a pre-tax account works and um, why someone would, you know, typically say I should do a pre-tax account?
1: Yeah, so a pre-tax, we'll use a 401k, for example, if you put your... Deferral, if you're under the age of 50, at 22500 into the 401k, pre-tax means you're taking a tax deduction on that. So if you're in the highest tax bracket, you're saving federally 37% on that deduction. You're not paying income tax on that money. Versus putting money into a Roth account, it's after tax. You're paying taxes on it, but then obviously there's benefits to a Roth. So 401k, you can take the deduction, 403b, 401k. An IRA, however, if you're an income limit, it has to be an after tax contribution you can't take that deduction which we can get into in a second but high level overview of pre-tax is taking the tax deduction before the money so, goes So like on.
0: real quick if like you and I were two physicians at a hospital like sitting in like at lunch talking about this and let's say we both were making I will just make this up half a million bucks and so um you know probably directionally our pay our net take home would be like 23,000 a month if you're in Pennsylvania right so if you were doing pre-tax in your 401k and I was doing Roth really the only difference, if we we're maxing out the $22,500, what's called an elective deferral, if I was doing Roth, my paycheck would be uh, about $700 a month less than yours, or 350 per pay if I'm paid twice per month less than yours. So all that we're gonna, all that I'm going to notice different is $700 a month. But when you fast forward you know, 30 years of compounded interest on this money, if you had done pre-tax and saved that, you know, just doing quick math, seven to eight thousand dollars a year in federal tax every year along the way, times thirty years. So let's just say two hundred forty thousand dollars. If you had two million bucks at the end of that your career in that four hundred one k, all of that money is going to be taxed. Whereas if I had taken accepted that lower paycheck of seven hundred dollars a month, and I also had the same returns as you did and had two million dollars, all of my money would be tax free. Um, so you know, a lot of debates we hear is. Well, Matt, Jameson, like I'm in a high tax bracket now. When I go to retire, I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket. So I should be doing pre-tax because at this point, my school loans are going to be paid. My house will be paid. My kids will be gone. And all like life will all be figured out. So that's the most common is just tax bracket management. Are you going to be in a lower tax bracket now, higher later, or higher now, lower later? and i think this is an important part of the conversation i think it's like i would say 10% of the conversation but it's definitely like public facing this is what we've seen is how people decide between pre tax and roth so let's first just talk about jameson in your experience um because you know you work like personally with about 100 physicians so like what's your experience with the retired ones their kids are gone. Their stuff's paid off. Like, are they actually in a lower the tax bracket?
1: No, never.
0: Um, Break us like walk us through why. So
1: yeah, number of reasons this is really interesting. So social security is always there. Let's just say combined, if two high-income earning physicians, that's a hundred thousand. And then um, if there's a pension, generally those you know those aren't as popular anymore. So let's say there's no pension. You have um, a lot of times people don't actually stop working. So there's some sort of income still coming in. Um, and then if we have dividends from a non-qualified account, that's income, any capital gains realized sometimes there's, you know, real estate or private equity sales, other things that are coming in as income that you're never actually as low as an income bracket as you think.
0: Okay. So hypothetically, someone is worth 5 million bucks and they retire and they have, you know, between the two spouses, let's say social security is like 70 grand. They have... Uh, you know, let, let's just fast forward when RMDs start in a pre-tax account. So 75, let's say they have, you know, um, $4 million in a pre-tax account and RMDs are like 200 at that point. So if you take the 200 plus the 70 in the social security, the cutoff, because it's the federal tax brackets work 10, 12, 22, 24, and the cutoff from 24 to 32 is right about 340. So that person saying they'd be in a lower tax bracket. Most likely, they're going to be you know, right back up into that mid-tax bracket. And historically, we're going to talk about tax brackets later, um, are lower now than they have been historically. Yeah. So um, I think there's a, that's a common myth. You may be in a lower tax bracket on part of your money when you retire. But generally, if, if you are someone that's saving a lot and a higher net worth client, um, taxes will still be an issue, especially if you've like over accumulated wealth based upon what you think your lifestyle is going to be. If you have five to 10 million bucks and you're used to spending 10,000 a month, it doesn't matter if you spend 10,000 a month, IRS based upon what account types you have are still going to make you show an income higher than that because of required minimum distributions, et cetera. So let's just talk about some mechanics of, of the 401k. So pre-tax, a couple things. Um, it's great on the way in because you get that tax benefit on the way in. It's great as it grows because it's growing tax deferred. But then when you take it out, the really the there's four problems I have with the pre-tax IRA. And I use the analogy of retirement planning is like climbing a mountain. Like climbing the mountain is requires a certain set of tools, but then getting down from the mountain requires a totally different set of tools. And getting down is when most of the accidents happen. And so if you are climbing the mountain and you only have certain tools in your backpack, you're you're not going to have a high success rate getting down. So you need to think about what tools you need when you're at the bottom to not only get up but also to get down, right? So a pre-tax 401k presents a couple problems when you're getting down. One, it's taxed, and we don't know what tax rates are. So, James, just give us a high level on that number one of taxes just not, we've talked we've addressed the lifestyle. Will you be in a higher tax bracket or not? But let's talk about historically federal rates. Where are we now, and where have they been historically?
1: Yeah, um, so right now, the highest federal tax bracket is 37%. Um, that's over, I think, 693 is the income limit of a married filing joint couple for 2023. And if we look back, and we can put this in the show notes, we have a nice chart that shows this. Historic tax rates, so twenty six in twenty 29- nine. 2018, sorry, the um, tax cuts that were put in place are in place until 2025. So in 2025, 2026, we know that the 37% tax bracket is going to increase to 39.6. That's what the old tax rate was. So we know if nothing else, no legislation's changed, um, we're already going to see a 2.6% increase in the highest tax bracket. However... There is a lot of, um, obviously, social security, Medicare. There's a lot of stimulus printed with COVID, um, national debt. All of these things are indicating that taxes will go up in the future. And if we look back at historic tax rates from the, and you'll see this in the chart, from like the 1930s up until like the 1970s, 80s-ish, the highest marginal tax bracket was actually like Generally between seventy to ninety
0: percent. I think it averaged seventy. Yeah, and very few people were paying that, but that again was it's crazy. Was the highest rate. Yeah. And the highest rate right now is almost half of that.
1: And so, one interesting thing is, uh, actually I actually think you told me this. Social Security. It used to in, in the nineteen forties. There were forty workers to one person claiming Social Security, and today there are three people to one. Three people working. It's less than to three. One. It's
0: like two something per one. And so the reality is like the trust fund, if you just Google this, of Social Security is set to run out. But I think like a little bit over 75% of the Social Security payments right now are being funded from current taxation. Um, And so, but this is a problem that's going to be fixed is that the general, like the median net worth, if you just Google median net worth for someone in America under the age of 65 is like under 300,000. So if you take Social Security away for retirees, like the majority, a good portion of the population will be homeless. Yeah. So Social Security is not going anywhere. But if it's not going anywhere, how does it get funded? And that's your taxes. Taxes, yeah. Right? And so I think it is... The government obviously has control. And typically, the tax legislation works moving forward. It can not affect like a... So if you have a Roth account, you're worried, well, what if they change the rules? It'll be moving forward. So any Roth plan that you do now or pre-tax. It's going to be grandfathered on the current tax law based upon history. Um, but I think it, taxes are a strong consideration. So I don't view... The problem number one we have with pre-tax accounts, I don't see taxes as a, hey, am I going to be in a higher rate personally now or personally in the future? I view it just more as a general state of the union in America. Do I think taxes will be higher yes. 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now? and I have no idea. But if I were to put like a bet on it, I would definitely say they're going to be higher, for all the reasons you said. Yeah. So thanks for sharing. So number two, the number two issue we have, and this is a hidden one, is when you have a pre-tax account and you have required minimum distributions, uh, Medicare. So Medicare rates, and so just a quick review of Medicare, there's part A, B, C, and D, and we're talking about B and D, primarily B, because B is what, A, if you're vested in the social security system, is free. C is optional, Medigap. B, though, is what's going to get based upon your income. Right, So, married, filing, joint, do you have these charts in front of you? I think it's like 190 is the cutoff. It works two years prior. You're going to pay the lowest rate, and that's per month per spouse. If you go a dollar above that on your adjusted gross income, it gets surcharged like 50%, and it can go up 3x, even 4x. So, we're talking thousands of dollars per year, higher cost per spouse if your income is too high and so a pre tax account is going to force your income to be too high because you know with the secure, secure act 2.0 rmd ages are getting pushed from 72 and beyond but even even so um, this account is going to create that medicare issue where your medicare costs are going to pay an extra you know maybe 250,000 per spouse if you're a high net worth person extra in health care cost um, so that another is another reason why to to consider how much you put in a pre-tax account is Medicare rates, right? So I I promised four problems. So one was taxes, two is Medicare. Three is what's called sequence of returns. And then the fourth is what we call the widow penalty. So Jameson, talk us through um, sequence of returns. And if we can just, let's let's use that analogy of climbing the mountain and getting down from the mountain again. What is sequence of returns just on a super quick high level? And why does this matter in a pre-tax account? And why does it not or off?
1: Yeah, and we have a chart that uh, maps this out. We can put this in the show notes, too. Perfect.
0: Basically, when you're
1: on the accumulation phase, so let's say you're from age 40 to 65, you're working, you have an income coming in, a paycheck, you don't need to take any distributions from your investment account. So there is no risk of, like, yes, you want high returns with your investments, but it doesn't matter what year. You know, if one year is up 20 and next year is down 20, it doesn't matter because you are not take any distributions. As long as you get that average rate of return every year, you'll get to the same end result. However, when we're going down the mountain and we're starting to take distributions, like, for example, you have a 20, let's say for 20 years you're going to take distributions. If the first three years the uh, stock market's down and you're selling at a loss, that's going to dramatically impact the longevity of your portfolio because you're taking losses those early years versus at a gain. So high-level sequence of return risk is basically the risk in retirement of being forced to sell or selling equity is at a loss because you need income coming in. Obviously, there's ways to insulate this. um, But in a pre-tax IRA with the Secure Act 2.0 that was just passed, age 73, The government mandates that you have to start taking distributions from this account because they want their taxes. None of that money has been taxed yet, and they don't want you to just leave it in there and never pay taxes on it. So at age 73, you have to start taking a distribution, and it doesn't matter if the market's up or down. They're going to say, you have to take a percentage of this account out, pay taxes on it, and even if the market's down, you still have to take the distribution, which is basically the sequence of return risk. You're forced to lock in losses if the market's down. So with
0: this, it's incredible, and like... I think one of the biggest, um, definitely one of the biggest, most important topics. So this affects everybody when they retire, yeah. or even college planning, when you actually go to withdraw the money. So this this chart that we're going to put in basically shows three investors all starting the million dollars on the beginning of the mountain. And all three of them got a 7% average return. So the first one got great returns and then not so good for the end. The, first, the second person got the exact reverse order. Bad at the start, good at the end, and then the third person just got seven percent every year. So every all three of these went from like a million to over five million. No changes in outcome, even though the sequences were totally different. So they basically climbed the mountain, different pathways, but all got to the top. All got the same result. And then what you're saying at the, on the top, getting down, they all got those seven percent returns. But the, in this instance, it was you know a million dollars taking sixty thousand a year every year, adjusting it for inflation. Well, the first person that got good returns at the start, bad at the end, they got their 60 a year adjusted for inflation every year and still had their million dollars at the end. The second person, like you said, million dollars took out 60. The market also went down. So now the next year they're taking out of a lower amount. They didn't even last, you know, till 90 their money was gone. Yeah. Same returns, though. Same amount of money they're taking out. Same returns. Instead of having their million left, they had nothing left. And then the third person had, you know, like about forty percent of their money left when they just had that seven percent. So sequence of returns is like, I want to say one of the biggest risks by far in financial planning, because um, market going up and down is irrelevant if you have a good financial plan. But if you have all of your money in an account where you're forced to take it out, it's hard to have a good financial plan because someone else has control of that. You don't, yeah, right. And so that's the biggest issue we have with pre-tax. Who cares about taxes? It's like, okay, do I have the control and the autonomy of my money? So the fourth thing is this widow penalty. And this comes into play in two aspects, number one and number two. This affects taxes and this affects Medicare premiums. So hypothetically, we have a client that is, you know, spending 250 a year as a married couple, 70,000 Social Security. The rest is, let's say, pre-tax RMD. RMD is coming out. So 180 is coming out. God forbid one spouse passes. What changes? Well, the answer is just one thing. The one thing is one Social Security drops off. So the higher of the Social Security, if you've been married for 10, 10 years, stays no matter what. So if one spouse was getting 40 in Social Security, the second spouse was 30, it doesn't matter which one passed. The 40 is going to stay. So out of that 250 of adjusted gross income that we just described, it's going to drop to 220. The RMDs are still the same because you know it's inherited IRA now, assuming they're over, let's say they're 75. And the amount of money is going to stay the same. So even if that spouse wasn't requ- didn't require that much money to live, their income still going to show the same amount, less that 30000 However, the government has it written into Medicare code and tax codes that rates the runway gets cut in half. So the surviving spouse's Medicare rates, instead of having 190 of income before the, the rates get surcharged, that gets cut in half. So that spouse their medicare rates are like tripling minimum and we'll put the medicare rates the tables in the um in the sh- in the show notes here but then the tax runway so from 10 to 12 12 to 22 22 to 24 gets cut in half as well so do you have can you pull up the tax table let's see if you your computer here you're pre- well prepared I'm not um so as the married filing jointly couple nothing was getting taxed at a 32% tax price. It was, they were eating up the 10, the 12, the 22, and the 24. But now that it's just one spouse and the runways got cut in half, a significant portion of the income is now getting taxed at 32. So 2023 rates, married, filing jointly, 24% rate is from 190 to 364. So About sixty thousand of that two hundred and fifty was at the twenty four, and now suddenly, if you're a single person, um, the twenty four percent stops is from ninety to one base eighty nine thousand seventy six to one seventy thousand fifty. So the spouse, surviving spouse that was never paying that thirty two percent tax bracket or even thirty five, is now paying a thirty two percent instead of twenty four, paying thirty two, so eight percent higher on every dollar between one seventy to two fifteen. And then thirty five percent on everything from wow. two fifteen nine five one up to three twenty three, so uh, on a good portion of income, there has been an immediate eight percent increase on some and an eleven percent increase on some as well. Plus some Medicare. Plus Medicare, which I think the the Medicare rates right here. Uh, no. But either way, we'll put those in the show notes. Okay, so those are the four problems with with. Uh, with the pre-tax stuff. So why, Jameson, why are these not an issue if you have a Roth account?
1: Yeah. So Roth essentially can help solve these four issues. Fundamentally, Roth is, again, after-tax money going in. So you don't get a deduction. But once it's inside the Roth account, it grows tax-free, it distributes tax-free, and it passes to beneficiaries tax free. So,
0: um, and real quick, that's assuming that you've had the account, if you've converted on a backdoor Roth, we're gonna go through some crazy strategies here. Five years from conversion on basis, and then everything's tax free if it's five years after the conversion, plus you've reached the age of 59 and a half. Yeah. And what you've said is just magical growth is tax free, and everything then is, comes out tax free, what you put in, plus all the growth, plus that passes to your kids tax free as well
1: um so when it distributes in retirement it doesn't show as income so you can avoid if this is done if you have a strategic distribution plan you have income filling up the low tax brackets through social security um you know any income coming in and then anything to avoid the high tax brackets you distribute from roth accounts because you're not showing income so one you're avoiding the high tax brackets two you can standard those medicare surcharges because you're not showing income um, and then there are no required minimum distributions with a Roth IRA. A Roth 401k, there are with a Roth IRA, there's not. So if you um, hit age 73 and that money's in the Roth IRA, the government doesn't tell you you have to take it out. So if the market's up or down, you can leave it in there and selectively pull it out whenever you want to. So much more autonomy and control. And then the fourth um, the fourth issue was the widow tax. If you have majority of your money in Roth, You can distribute and avoid those high tax brackets when that gets cut down. So, high level overview Roth is again, get it in there, never pay taxes again on it, grows tax free, distributes tax free, can solve a lot of these problems. Um, Anything to add? And then we can dive into how to actually get money into the room. No, that's
0: great. I would say so, you know, generally, we're not providing specific advice um, on a podcast because, you know, there's going to be so many variety of listeners in different income brackets, different um, net worth brackets. But you know the general advice I would say, if you have a net worth, if you're going to have a net worth over five million in retirement, of liquid money, not including like your real estate or business interest or anything like that, five million dollars of liquid, we'd recommend at least have a third of that tax free. And the reason that we'd have have a third of it tax free, because we've run thousands of financial plans over the last ten years. You're too young. I have, Uh, and you've you've probably run thousands as well in the last you know four or five years that you've done this. The reality is all of the issues we just discussed are addressed. They're not like solved, but the big gaping like planning holes are typically addressed if you just have a third of your money. If you have a net worth above five million, a third of your money being tax-free. And it could be tax-free through Roth, that's our favorite place. It could be tax-free through the basis of a taxable account. It could be tax-free in a cash value inside of a life insurance policy. Not saying Roth is the only place you can have tax-free money, but generally having a third of your money tax-free it addresses tax concern. It addresses uh, Medicare concerns. It address because it gives you optionality to control your modified adjusted gross income. It it, it addresses sequence of return risk because you know the tax-free money has one thing in common: you control it. The government doesn't because the government doesn't care when you use it because they don't get their paws on it. Did, so, yeah, life, paid the yeah. so taxable accounts, there's no RMDs, there's no you don't have to take distributions, cash value, life insurance, and Roth, right? So completely solves the sequence of return, like the climbing versus descending a mountain scenario, which is the biggest scenario by far. And then the fourth thing, which was the widow penalty, it completely addresses that as well. Cause then the surviving spouse has the optionality to Where they distribute the money from, but again, that's where it's—I don't want to say it's fixed because it's just addressed. Because in that surviving spouse example, if the surviving spouse still has, in that example, let's say three and a half million dollars of pre-tax money, their RMDs are going to be too high for Medicare, for the widow tax penalty on taxes, etc. So we just recommend if you're if you're projecting out a net worth over five million, a third of your money being tax-free is—that's just the starting point of the conversation. Like if you don't ever want to work with a financial advisor. Project it out and just make sure you're putting the right money in place. But based upon goals, spending habits, where your net worth is, et cetera. I mean, sometimes we have clients that have over half of their net worth tax free, um, in in Roth or, you know, taxable brokerage accounts, et cetera. It's very case by case, but just in general, we do want to provide financial literacies and and so um, that, that's just a starting point.
1: And I know you're big on this. I would say a lot of like that. Even, even if it isn't more tax beneficial to get more money in the Roth, meaning that like if you are paying a lot of taxes up front to get it in, and let's say you are going to be in a lower tax bracket, the autonomy and control a lot of people like would pay the tax to have control over when they can take the money out.
0: There's no question. I mean, because there's million-dollar mistakes when you're – forced to take out of something yeah. or you don't have the the backup to keep something alive or you know op- being opportunistic is very important as an investor as well. Yeah. Especially if you're high net worth you know having having optionality is, is key. Yeah. So
1: um okay so taxes, autonomy, those are the big things. Now let's talk about how um how we can actually get money into a Roth. So a couple of ways. I think one of the biggest misconceptions, I would say probably new clients that I talk to, I don't want to make a gen, uh, probably at least over half of them tell me they make too much money to put fund a Roth IRA, which is like a big misconception into technically is true, but they think they can't get money into Roth at all. Um, and we have high income earners that are getting over $100,000 a year, you know, between two spouses into Roth accounts. So let's talk about how to actually do that. Um, three ways, three main ways. One would be through your Roth 401k, Roth 403b. If it's available, two would be Roth IRA or backdoor Roth IRA, and three would be a Roth conversion. So taking your pre-tax money, paying the taxes on it, and getting into the Roth. Um, let's start with the first one: Roth 401k, Roth 403b. Matt, you want to dive into that?
0: Yeah, I, I I'll go through just an actual case now. I'm just thinking of a couple clients we have, so you know that do all three of these. Um, so I'm just thinking of a client. Let's just, you know, not going to say obviously ever names confidentiality, but 600 physician. Um, works a non for profit, would we'll say makes half a million dollars a year. Um, also has one hundred thousand dollars of ten ninety nine income through consulting, like legal work uh, that he does. And so, we have three mechanisms that we're funding a, a Roth for him, and then also um, the fourth mechanism we're getting a huge tax deduction on. So we'll talk. Th- we'll just talk through this high level. So the first thing he's doing is a backdoor Roth IRA. What a backdoor Roth IRA is, it's 6500 into an after-tax IRA because, like you said before, he can't deduct his income too high. So he can't put money directly into a Roth IRA because he's way above the income limit cutoff. However, anyone, regardless of income, can put money into a traditional IRA. Not necessarily you can't take the tax deduction because, again, his income is too high, but you can take put money into an after-tax traditional IRA and then the next day convert it to a Roth. This is called a backdoor Roth IRA strategy. Um, so that's the first thing he's doing. It's $6,500. His wife is not working. Um, you know, they've got three kids at home. So the wife, because she's married to him, can do what's called a spousal backdoor Roth IRA. So he is doing the 6500 The wife is also doing 6500 as well. So really quick before I go to number two and three ways we're doing the Roths, Jameson, you tell, just give us a, a high level, what needs to be in place to avoid mistakes when doing a backdoor Roth, specifically around aggregation, things like that.
1: Yeah, I know exactly what client you're thinking of. So they had a $100,000 IRA the first, when we first met them. And so there's um, basically what needs to happen just from a super high level without getting too like nerdy and technical. The entire pre-tax IRA balance needs converted to Roth first, and then you can do the backdoor Roth mechanism. If you don't do that, and you try to fund the after-tax and then convert it to Roth while there's still an IRA balance, it aggregates a portion, a percentage of the um, Roth conversion makes it taxable, essentially. So the way to avoid that, uh, uh, convert all pre-tax IRAs first, and then you can fund the backdoor Roth.
0: So, yeah, absolutely. And in, th- in this case, because of the step-two strategy, or the second strategy of getting the Roth, we're actually, so to get rid of aggregation, the most simplest way is to convert all existing pre-tax money into a Roth. Pay the tax one time, then forever that money's, you know, in that tax-free environment, assuming you wait five years and you're 59 and a half. Um, However, the other workaround of this, if you don't want to pay any taxes, is you can move your IRA money to a different universe, of 401k. So you can take a pre-tax IRA and do a tax-free rollover to a pre-tax 401k and a 401k is viewed as a different universe from the IRS. So when you go do a backdoor Roth IRA, you have to fill out what's called a Form 8606, which you know you put in the money into an after-tax IRA. Did you convert it? If you convert it, was there growth, and just the growth gets taxed? But um, in this case, we actually rolled the money out to his 401k that we set up, and that completely eliminated the aggregation issues, and so it gave him a him and his spouse the runway to then do 6,500, 6,500 in 2023 is the limit because he's under the age of 50, um, into backdoor Roth, which is awesome. So the second thing is, you know, he has a 403B through his, you know, his income, his W2 income, half a million dollars. So in a 401k, if you're under the age of 50 in 2023, you can fund up to $66,000 a year into it. And he's in a weird setup where he actually doesn't get a match. Um, so the Roth limit is 22500 but that leaves a difference of, you do the quick math for me, what is that, 40, no, $43,500, that you can do what's called the 415C limit. So the government in a 403B or 401K, the total that can go in, imagine your 401K is just one giant bucket. If you're under 50, it's 66000 a year you can put in. If you're over 50, it's 73500 most people only think you can put in the, what's called the 402G limit, which is elective deferral, which is a 22, the 22500 The 22500 is where you decide, do you want to do pre-tax or do I want to do Roth? So he, we recommended, even though you're going to high income, do the Roth. For all the reasons we've already talked about at the beginning of this podcast. So the $22,500, he does Roth. The $43,500 um, could be accomplished through a match, which his employer does not do. It could be accomplished through a profit sharing from his employer, which would be pre-tax. His employer does not do. Or it could be accomplished if, if what's called an after-tax contribution is allowed. In this case, it is. So he can put up the other additional 43500 into an after-tax 403B. And this plan allows for an in-plan conversion to Roth. So what he does is we do the 22500 Roth. We do the $43,500 after tax and then we immediately convert that. We front load it in the beginning of the year and we immediately convert that to um, to the Roth as well. So he gets 6500 in a backdoor Roth for him, 6500 backdoor Roth for his wife, 66000 through what's called the mega backdoor Roth, which I just described through his 403B. And then he also had through his 1099 income, um, we have the another 401k setup. So another misconception is, you know, you can only have one 401k. You can only have one 402g limit in a 401k. So that Roth deferral of the 22,500, only one social security can have one of those. But the second 401k through his 1099 income, we're able to fund another 66,000 and go straight shot into the after tax 401k that's running through his, you know, legal consulting practice, and then immediately convert that to Roth as well. So in this case, 13 backdoor Roth IRAs for him and his wife, 66 mega backdoor Roth 403B, 66 mega backdoor Roth 401K. So, what is that? I can't do the math. 13 plus 66 plus 66. That's 132 plus 13. So, that's 145. Can you check that? So, 145 is in the Roth, I believe. And that's without any conversions. Yeah, 145. Yeah, 145 a math. year in a Roth. Um, he's just a W-2 physician, not just. I mean, he's an incredible dude. Him and his spouse is even smarter. Um, so one forty five uh, all Roth, and uh, no conversions. So common misconception, like, my income's too high, I can't do Roth. I mean, no, it's you can do true. a backdoor yeah. Roth, mega backdoor Roth. You can do multiple form ks if you have other income. And the other cool thing, too, is we also have a cash balance pension plan on him, which isn't the purpose of this podcast. We'll have a podcast <laughs> just on that. Um, but that's another way where you can layer, because, again, we don't want him ending up at retirement, being in the high tax highest tax bracket his whole career, and then just having all Roth. So the cash balance pension plan is also a way. It doesn't get aggregated. It doesn't get in the way. It's another plan he can save for retirement, asset protected in Pennsylvania, all tax deductible this year. And he's able to pile money into that on top of everything else we just described through 1099 income as well.
1: One question I've gotten many times is, can I put too much money into a Roth? Not like Basically, just like from a financial planning standpoint, can you over-accumulate in Roth? So what's your opinion?
0: Yeah, it depends on how you view your plate. Like, if you imagine like your plate of money is like you and your kids, then there's no such thing, right? Because like then, like, yeah, like you may be in a higher, lower tax bracket now, but then when it goes to your kids, they're getting it tax-free. So if we want to get technical, there's a lot of factors we wouldn't know until it's too late. Right. So what are your what if your kids are in high tax brackets, then they're great to get Roth money. If they're in low tax brackets, mm-hmm. you actually
1: would be, be better off
0: to have given them pre-tax money. Um, also we do recommend you always want to fill those low tax brackets. So you don't you do not want everything under Roth. You definitely want to show income to pay the 10, 22, the 10, 12, 22, and 24% rates, in our opinion. Like those are low rates. And if you look at history from like 1920 to now, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Like They all like totally disagree on what taxes should be for the wealthy. But for the lower tax brackets, they always agree. They always should be low. So like even if you're a high net worth person, when you go to retire, tax rates are graded. So you should absolutely have some pre-tax money where you can rip out every year in retirement and fill those low tax brackets. If you have everything in Roth and you just fund it, it costs you maybe an arm and a leg to get it in, and then now you're taking it out and avoiding low rates. So, ideally, we want you to show taxes, like pay taxes to fill the low rates, all in a balancing act between looking at Medicare rates and, and are you married or you're not married and et cetera. But then also, we really just want the Roth for generally speaking, the surcharges on Medicare, the surcharges and taxes for spousal planning and then for inheritance planning as well.
1: I would say, too, um, we know taxes. Like we talked about at the beginning, historically are low right now, so it's like if we think they're going to get no matter what your specific plan of distribution is in retirement, if we think that they're going to be higher in the future, and even just in 2026, it's going to go up 2.6 percent for the highest uh, highest tax brackets. Like okay, then there's you really can't over accumulate into Roth now because you know you're paying a higher rate in the future. So yeah, um, a lot of factors here. So for then leaving money, a couple other quick hitters with Roth, leaving money to either beneficiaries or a charity. So you had te- touched on if kids are in higher tax bracket. So let's think of a lot of physicians, at least that we work with. A lot of times their kids end up being physicians. Um, and they're just like their parents are physicians. I would say that's common. And so if you th- if your kids are going to be in a high tax bracket, no brainer, get into Roth, inherited tax-free. They don't pay any taxes on it. Flip side, if they... Um, not the point of this con of this podcast for charitable contributions. We could do a whole other episode on that. But if the goal is to donate a bunch of money to charity, Roth would not be the best option. We'd rather have that. It would be the worst. Yeah. yeah. We'd rather have something that's not been taxed, like a pre-tax IRA, go to the charity because then they don't pay any taxes on it.
0: Yeah. You can gift, like, if I were to gift a million dollars to a charity over to Roth, and you gift a million dollars to a charity through a pre-tax, I get the same result, Right. But it cost me a lot more money to get in the Roth. So if you're charitable, that's a great point, or um, kids with low tax brackets, then pre-tax should be considered more than Roth. Um, But there's so many factors that come into play. How important is control and autonomy to you? When is your retirement date? Um, Risk tolerance, et cetera. But generally speaking, for the takeaways, is don't just think about the one factor of taxes. You should have a plan that involves pre-tax and Roth, and both. And generally speaking, right now we're in a tax rate environment where Roth makes a whole lot of sense regardless of what tax bracket you're in. And most people are behind on Roth planning. So even if you're in the highest tax bracket and all of your net worth right now is pre-tax, it's probably time to start considering how to some advanced strategies like backdoor Roths, like Roth conversions, like mega backdoor Roths. If you have 1099 income you know, structuring that mega backdoor off on top of, you know, maybe a cash balance plan, all of those things should really be heavily considered. Thanks for tuning in to uh, our podcast. Hopefully you found this helpful. Really hope this is as beneficial and impactful to as many people uh, across the nation as possible. So hit the follow button, Uh, make sure to rate the podcast and please share uh, with any friends or family members that would also find this beneficial. Thank you very much.